Welcome to Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. Innovative, evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma, allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process. Today, episode 78, Change, Part 1. And now your host, Dr. Donna Bevanley. And this is Dr. Donna Bevanley helping you heal your family legacy. Welcome back. And today I'm going to talk about an issue that has that you know has been rattling around in my mind a little bit, how to talk about this and what it all means, and that issue is change. Now you might think this isn't an issue, but it really is a huge issue. And, you know, people have a hard time with change and try to stop change, but change is inevitable. It happens to us every moment of our lives. Um, You can say that change means growth. I mean, you talk, talk about our experience on this planet. We come into it and immediately we start to change. We start to notice things. We, our teeth come in. Uh, we start to notice our parents. We start to notice grandparents. We start to get bigger. We start to be able to eat more food. I mean, it happens all day long. Our cells change all day long. They die. They regrow new cells, you know, some slower than others. Um, but change is inevitable. Now, it will happen. It's going to happen. Every day it happens to us. When we learn new things, that's called change because it changes who we are. It changes our perspective. It changes our emotional sense. And, you know, the thing that brought this to my attention was uh, the other morning, sometimes I watch those morning news shows that come up and I was watching this one and uh, a young man who is a newscaster was interviewing this sad looking, you know, kind of forlorn looking man who was talking about, you know, the change in his community. And the, the uh, community was, oh, 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 I forgot the name of the, but it doesn't matter because I think this is true for almost everybody that say, was born in the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s, um, he never left his hometown. He stayed in his hometown, and he talked about how, you know, his, his ancestors came to this town, they settled this town, they, you know, built, they built homes, they built roads, they built schools and shops and um how uh it's allentown that's where it was anyway so um he was talking about how his his entire family was has have been from allentown and uh now he said it's changed so much i hardly know it the guy was probably a little younger than me maybe born in the late 50s um, but he was so sad and he was angry about how, you know, the, his town had changed and 
the the uh, young newscaster asked him, well, what do you think has made this change so difficult for you? And he, he kind of stood there for a minute, and then he said, all the people of color have moved here. And now we have, you know, my my family with their their livelihoods have faded into the background, and we no longer, you know, have any control over what happens here. You know, there's there's you know restaurants that aren't there anymore that went when I was there. You know, the little food store that was there was no longer there. They've got shopping malls. You know, he went on to talk about how horrible this was. And I was sitting there thinking about it. And I thought, you know, that's kind of true where I was from. I say from. I, I mean, I my father traveled around a lot because he was fond of being in rodeos. And he had big dreams of being a big rodeo star back in the 50s. Um, it wasn't the same. I mean, today, if you're a big rodeo star, you can make a lot of money. But back then, he would make enough money to enter the next rodeo. So my point is that we were on the road a lot uh, from the time I was about four years old, and we didn't stop until I was 12. So many years we were on the road. But where I was actually born, where my mother was born, where my where my uh, father's mother and my grandfather moved to from the reservation that's what I call home. So it's Tooele. Tooele, Utah is the name of the town. So that's where I went to junior high. It's where I went to high school. Um, I was a proud Tooele Buffalo when I was young. And it was a delightful place. There were about, oh, six to 8,000 people. And the reason there was that many was because there was an army depot there. But even with that, it was a farming community. I mean, it was, you know, and my grandfather was one of the biggest farmers there. He was the mayor. Um, he served on the Utah Water and Power Board, helped build a couple of very large dams. Um, and, you know, he, he, he built a dam in our town, which has become really important at the time people were really against it but it became really important and it's still important today to manage water which is a valuable resource in Utah the second most dry state in the country but I think about that town when I was young and I feel warm feelings about it you know there were tree-lined streets there you know the downtown was this pleasant little place where there was a clothing store and there was, you know, Rexall Drugs, where we went and bought penny candy once in a while. There was a soda store, right? Tate's Soda Store, that when we were in junior high and high school, we'd all go up there after school and, you know, there was a jukebox and we'd dance and we'd sit and look into each other's eyes with our boyfriends and girlfriends and all that. I mean, it was that place that... People wish they could go back to. And, you know, I, for one, would not want to relive my uh, adolescence again. Um, it was tough, as it was for most of us. Um, but people long for that. 
You know, they longed to go back. And that was what this man was talking about. He was longing for that old thing. So now what's his town like? What's my town like? My town is now about almost 80,000 people. Okay. And we, and it is rife with drug problems. And, you know, it looks horrible that those street line, those tree line streets are, you know, now they look like, they look terrible. Everybody's, those delightful little houses, some of them were brick, you know, have add-ons so many times. And for the most part, they don't look good. If you walk in, it's like, where does this staircase go to? And what's that room over there about? Doesn't seem to live here. Doesn't seem to belong here. Um, the sidewalks are so old that they're cracking and they go, you know, the, the, uh, trees get really rooted and the, you know, it's like if you're not careful, you step, you trip over the next block of uh concrete of sidewalks um tree line streets are just in horrible shape and the beautiful homes that used to be on some of the richer more wealthy areas are now just run down some of them have the homeless living in them my town that i grew up in was similar to allentown and you know, I've heard people that didn't leave there, who lived there their whole lives, just, you know, in my town, it's like, what's happened to our town? They're angry. They're uh, sad. They, you can see it in their eyes. They, they have some grief. Like, and when I go there, I have some of that grief too. But the, I don't have as much grief. And I'm certainly not as angry. I'm not angry about that because I know change is inevitable. And that means we all change. Our hometowns have all changed. Let me tell you, they've all changed. And why is that? Well, because we keep, you know, we keep growing. We have, we grow up, we get married, we have children, or sometimes we have children without getting married. But you know, we keep getting more, there are more and more of us. And it's always been that way. <laughs> because people keep having children. It's just part of how life goes. And every time there's a child born, and that child is growing up, it's experiencing change all along. And it's tough. You know, when, when I was raising my child, even when I was in school, and I was learning about you know, the development of human beings and child development, we call them growth spurts and phases. Okay. It's like, Oh, I knew when my kid was, you know, having trouble sleeping and wouldn't eat what he usually ate and was cranky and upset. And, you know, wasn't all, you know, he was such a, he was such a cuddly guy. I mean, he loved to play as hard as he could. And then he'd come over and he'd cuddle up you know, in my arms and sit there and kind of rest a little bit and then he'd be off playing again. <clears throat> but human beings, our growth spurts are very similar to the rest of the world. It's not just human beings. The world goes through growth spurts. And we, we, our world is going through growth spurts 
as we speak, okay? And so those of us, and I include myself in this because I think I'm pretty good at it, is that we adapt and adjust to change, okay? And when we do that, we feel better, okay? We live longer because we can say, oh, wow, that's a, that's a big shift. I guess, uh, I guess I better figure out how to adjust to that. Say, let's just take something that happened when I was in college and f- fought so hard for, let's say Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> when Roe v. Wade took effect, it was a huge change. It was a big change socially, you know, religions and, you know, it's like it was really changed. It caused people to have to stop and say, wait, is this okay? Is this change okay? And even now, 70% of our country thinks that it was a good idea. But those people who cannot adjust, they just can't adapt and adjust to the inevitable of change, still want to take us back and recreate something that was here before. Okay, this is not a good adaptation to change. When we try to become what we were before, we interrupt the cycle of life and human growth and development. It's not all easy. But instead of saying, well, this change that happened 50 years ago, we can't have that. We've got to go back into the, you know, into that time where it wasn't okay. Everything from 1972 back, not okay. We have to take it back so that we'll all feel comfortable again. Let me tell you, do any of you think that our lives and our world has become more comfortable because Roe v. Wade was overturned and we returned to before 1972? Let me tell you something that I heard on the news yesterday. Yes, I watched the news not a lot, but I do watch it enough to know what, to keep abreast of what's going on. There was a young man on the news and he was waiting to go have a vasectomy. What's happened is that young men who are virile, who are in relationships with me, are going back now. They're saying, oh, that, that uh, going back thing, that's not good for my girlfriend. It's not good for my partner. It's not good for my wife. What a concept to think about what happens to women, right? And so they're going in and getting vasectomies. Because why? He said, the reason he's going back, he doesn't want his partner for his life. He doesn't want her to have to face the possibility that she would be pregnant and they wouldn't be ready. He didn't talk about what it would do to himself. He talked about her. And I'll tell you right now, those justices, that 
re- that returned us to the dark ages, they weren't thinking about the women that they know. You know, Comey Barrett might have thought about the women she knows. She, she was thinking about herself. Oh, I would never do that. Well, that's fine. You know, how do you adapt to something that you don't like? Well, you say, if I don't like it, I don't have to do it. If I don't like it, I don't have to participate. Now, I see the writing on the wall. People hate change. That If you asked any of those justices, say, do you dislike change that much? Oh, no, they would say. I think change is fine. But let me tell you that behavior speaks way louder than words. I look at people's behavior before I even listen to what they're saying. Why? Because I know that their behavior is telling me more about who they are than anything they say. And I want you to think about that. Your behavior tells us way more and tells the people around you way more than anything you can say. And when people trust you, they find out that your behavior matches what you say. So let's say, let's say Kavanaugh, when they asked him in the Senate hearings whether or not he would overturn Roe v. Wade, oh no, I'm not going to mess with precedent. He lied, okay? So now what happens is that the number of people who trust the Supreme Court has dropped exponentially. And what happens when we when we think our institutions are failing us and we don't trust them anymore? Well, some people get really angry. Some people get really sad. Some people get despondent. And what happens? Mental health crisis. We are in a mental health crisis. People are committing suicide, overdosing all the time now. They're trying to numb out. It's like they look at what our inst- who our institutions are, and they are saying this is one of the reasons that we're in a mental health crisis. They're saying we can't trust our institutions. We can't trust our Congress. We can't trust the Supreme Court. We can't trust the executive, judicial, and legislative arms of our government. And for those of you who never took civics, look it up. That's our three arms of government. If only we step back and say, you know, the changes that have held for 50 years or, you know, 10 years, or 20 years, those changes, okay, they helped a lot of people. In fact, they helped so many people live better lives that we just need, I, as a human being, need to adjust to that. I need to adapt to that. Now, I know, as a gay person, that they're coming from me next, <clears throat> they want to they wanna unmarry me in a relationship I've been in for 20 years. 
Okay, we've been together 20 years. We've been together than a lot of my heterosexual friends. And and now they want to take that away. So I would say, well, if you don't like gay marriage, be heterosexual. <laughs> You're heterosexual already. I wouldn't ask you to be gay. And let me let me tell you this. So just think about this. Can you decide that you're going to be a homosexual? Can you just make that decision for yourself? And I'm talking about people over the age of 25, okay? So your brain is fully formed. Everything's, you know, going the way it should. Would you make a decision to be homosexual? Those of you who are heterosexual would look at me and say, I can't make that change. It's just, I'm heterosexual. It's who I am. Well, when you ask a gay person to change who they are so you'll feel more comfortable, that's what you're asking them to do. You're asking them to change who they are. Now, all of us, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us, I'd say 90% of all gay people grew up heterosexual, dated heterosexually, had relationships with other people who were heterosexual, you know, were opposite sex of them, and they just couldn't make it work. It was like, this just feels weird. It feels weird. I don't think I can feel weird and out, you know, wrong in my body and in my soul for the rest of my life. Some tried. You know, I know people who were married to someone of the opposite sex. And it didn't work. And, you know, unhappily had to leave those marriages because they obviously cared about the person they were with, but it just wouldn't work. So when you make changes, and I will tell you, coming from a Mormon background, I was born and raised Mormon. I used to say, I eat, drink, and sleep Mormonism, and boy, did I ever. I used to say that proudly when I was young and still in the church. It's like, oh, it's the best thing ever. I eat, drink, and sleep it, and I did. Every minute of my life, every thought I had. So when I discovered that I wasn't heterosexual, it wasn't the happiest day of my life, but it was the most relieved I had ever felt. I felt so relieved, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, you mean all those really delightful young men and boys that, you know, I've dated and been with and wanted to marry me and all this. These were good guys. They were, you know, I loved some of them deeply. But it just didn't work out. It just felt too weird for me. And so it's so stressful. Now, when I discovered that I it wasn't about them, because that's all I knew. It's like, well, something's wrong with them, I guess. I better keep looking, right? And there were at least six of those young men who I was in a serious relationship with. And they talked about marriage. And as soon as they did, man, I was like, okay, I know this won't work. And so I'd leave. Some broken hearts I would leave. And when I discovered 
what the problem was. It wasn't them. They were just fine. It was me. I didn't know. And as soon as I know, I felt a great deal of relief. But let me tell you about changing. So everything in my mind, everything in my soul, everything in my heart had to change. And it wasn't easy. And one of the things that gay people go through to in the area of change is once they come out to themselves, okay, that's the first thing you have to do. You have to say, oh, I guess I'm gay. It's really difficult. Now, I know that there's a whole gang of people behind us, trans and, you know, all these things, but I'm talking about myself and when, when I had to make that huge change. And what was going on with other people who were gay trying to make that huge change? You must come out to yourself first. And that may, that is a that is a brave and scary thing to do. Because as I found, I had friends who just looked at me with horror and never spoke to me again. I had friends that, you know, I had met the parents and gone to their houses and we had overnights and everything and talk, you know, acted like I was some sort of a freak. Now I was helped out of the closet, which means that, you know, I was what I had come out to myself for two, only two years when one of my sister's friends outed me to my community, to the place where I was born and raised. That was uncomfortable. Called my mother. That was uncomfortable. She had then to make changes. My parents had to make changes in what they thought and felt about me. My sisters and brother had to make changes what they thought and felt about me. I know it wasn't easy. And one of my sisters still can't accept me. Now that my mother and father are dead, she refuses to have anything to do with me, and she will until the day she dies or until the day I die. That's kind of sad. But part of it is the rest of the world and how they see us. They haven't made the change. They haven't faced their own homophobia. And that's what it is. Now, I'm going to talk more about these change things because we all have, it is, our life is full of change. There is one thing that you can count on that will never change. And that's change. It's not going to go away. And so I'm going to talk more about this when we meet again. Until then, look at yourself and say, what do I need to do to feel better about the inevitable? Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com support. Healing Your Family Legacy is copyright 2022, Dr. Donna Bevanley, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.